Hi, everyone. Welcome to our third Resources Radio Live recording. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Uh, Once again this week, we are recording the podcast in front of a live, albeit virtual audience. Uh, In addition to being lightly edited for the podcast, this webinar is being recorded and will be posted on our website afterwards. This Resources Radio Live series focuses on topics that lie at the intersection of the COVID-19 pandemic and energy and environmental issues. And so far, we've talked about electricity consumption and air pollution. And today we're turning to a third topic that has received considerable attention during this period, which is the transportation sector. So my guest today is Abel Brother, who is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Ottawa. Abel's going to be talking with us about some of his recent research on transportation impacts, and in particular, some data related to car crash incidents uh, during the lockdowns. But Abel has also been looking at the economic impacts of the pandemic across a range of other dimensions, and we'll talk a bit about that broader research as well. So thank you again for joining us on Resources Radio Live, and with that, uh, let's get started. So Abel, it's a pleasure to talk with you today, and thank you very much for joining us on Resources Radio Live. No, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, So it's nice for our audience members to know a bit more about the day's guest. So can I start by asking you one of our typical questions, too, um, how you became interested in research related to economics and the environment? Yeah, so um, this is not my background, so I was not trained as um, an environmental uh, economist, uh, but I think it's combination of factors. Um, over the past couple of years, where I joined University of Ottawa uh, five years ago, and some of my colleagues, some of our graduate students are working on really fascinating, uh, uh, doing a lot of fascinating research in the field of environmental economics. So I think it's a lot of exposures to a lot of great research done by Caroline Fisher, but also uh, Anthony Hayes, uh, Nick Rivers, and our graduate students. And I think just over time, I always thought it was super important topic, obviously, global warming and so on. Um, but I think it's only lately that I realized that it can be really a lot of fun and super interesting from a research point of view, doing research on this. So for instance, you know, I never thought that, um, and economists have been uh, doing a lot of research on this, but I never thought that pollution can actually affect productivity of workers, uh, productive workers that are inside white collars that are in a new building with AC. So I never thought, you know, these things were possible and certainly at the beginning I was not really believing the the magnitude of these estimates but Hmm. then again you keep seeing studies like this and once you start thinking that you know your cognitive capacity can actually be affected by the weather by pollution and all these things you start realizing how important it is Um, Mm -hmm. obviously it was already important with global warming but it just feels even more like you know this is a topic that it is worth you know, doing investigation on. So mm-hmm. I guess, you know, just combination of a lot of different factors being exposed to a lot of uh, really cool research in the, on the subject. Yeah. And that reminds me too, I wanted to ask, so are, would you consider yourself a labor economist sort of by, uh, by training or by specialty? And so that interest in workers and sort of the intersections between workers and environment is of interest? Yeah, absolutely. So labor economists um, is so vague, you know, it just in, it engulfs everything. So it's perfect. So, you know, almost <laughs> all the applied microeconomists I know were trained as labor economists at the end of the day. And then they end up doing health or crime, or I've been doing a lot of work on crime, uh, urbanization, that sort of things. And obviously environment is related to all these things, but it's the same set of methods and skills, mm-hmm. I'd mm-hmm. say. So that's why you can jump in from one 
sub-discipline to another one uh, quite easily. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly going to ask you to cover a lot of territory in our conversation today. So I'm grateful that you are up for that. Um, but as I mentioned in the intro, um, you know, the the kind of the initial focus of our conversation, at least, is about the transportation sector. And I think it's fair to say that the pandemic has had some profound effects on travel volume, mode choice, and basically all across the world to various extents at various times. Um, so I am hoping we can touch on a number of issues related to the transportation sector. But I do want to start with your research on car crashes. Uh, so you and your colleagues looked at county level traffic and accident data in five U.S. states uh, during the height of the lockdowns. So what did you find in terms of impacts on vehicle traffic and on vehicle collisions? I, and I wanted to note too, you, um, you and your colleagues also looked at air pollution. I know that was sort of the main focus of our conversation last week. Uh, so I wanted to focus on kind of the additional findings. But of course, if you want to reference any of the air pollution findings, that would be great as well. Yeah. So yeah, we, we did get data at the daily level, at the county level for five states. And for us, it was really important to get this granular data uh, really at the county level, because actually in the U.S., a lot of counties and cities implemented their own lockdowns. Um, mm -hmm. So safer at home policies, lockdowns, I'm going to use these interchangeably. But um, so for us, it was really important to look at. So when a county implements a lockdown, is the effect very similar to a state? And having daily data was very important because one look at before and after a lockdown and comparing to other location during the same moment of time that they didn't have uh, the same type of uh, lockdown where they have any lockdowns in place. So, um, and then we complemented this with data from eight uh, major cities in the US going from Tucson to New York City, DC, um, San Francisco, Seattle, I forgot the other ones. Um, but what we find is a very large decrease in collisions. So car mm -hmm. crashes in the US in March, April were going down by 50% in states and counties where there was, um, where there was a lockdown implemented in comparison to other states at the same moment of time or counties that didn't have, have um, a lockdown implemented. So the, the effects were really large and we also document really large effects on fatalities. So for fatalities, it was not really clear what was going on. So for collision, it was not kind of obvious, but we knew it was going down, we just didn't know the magnitude. So it's going down because people are staying at home. So if you look at cell phone data that tracks where people are going, what you see is they're more likely to stay at home, they're less likely to go to work, they're less likely to go to groceries, etc. So just traffic was going down and that's why collision is going down. But for fatalities, what can be happening is people are speeding more, stun mm -hmm. driving, that sort of thing. And you do see some of this in the data for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but fatalities are down just because collision are down so much that fatalities are also down. Um, so we find also large effects on fatalities. In terms of um, air pollution, you know, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we find uh, for the entire U.S., again, at the county level, we find a decrease of 25% in um, uh, PM 2.5 emissions. So this is, you know, the effects are obviously larger in some places, smaller than others. So they're larger in places where people are more complying. So places that didn't vote for Trump, for instance, in the last uh, presidential election, they're larger estimates also in terms of decrease in pollution in places that um, in urban areas, for instance. So you see larger heterogeneity, but overall for the U.S., we documented a decrease of about 25%. Uh, so the number of days with bad, um, with a lot of pollutions were going down by a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to go back and ask just yeah. one more kind of clarifying thing about the fatality question. So can I just summarize this? Is it an accurate summary to say um, fatalities did not go down by sort of a proportional amount compared to the 
percentage by which collisions went down. So they went down, if I'm summarizing this correctly, they went down, but not as much as one would expect if if they had been perfectly proportional to collisions. Is that right? That's correct. So when you when you look at the data, there are some places where you see actually an increase in fatalities. Uh, it's a bit noisy, but overall there's a decrease uh, in fatalities, certainly in the states and counties that we looked at. The same in, um, in uh, so fatality data is not available for all these states and all these counties, but a few states that I remember looking at, like Missouri, there was a decrease. Uh, when we look at fatalities for these eight major cities, we also see a decrease uh, in fatalities, in car crashes and fatalities. Mm. So definitely an effect on this, but not necessarily as large as collision because speeding is going up. Hmm. Interesting, just anecdotally. But I always find it uh, particularly interesting when there's research that can either confirm or deny kind of my anecdotal experience of a situation. And this is definitely one where I felt like I was living through much less frequently, but the times mm -hmm. I did go out, I thought, I think people are driving a lot faster than they used to. So thanks for backing me up on that one. But yeah, you can. I mean, you know, it's empty. So it just, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's not clear also because when there's a fatality, when there's a car crash, if you have a car crash and there's nobody else, it's not a car crash between two cars, maybe, like the likelihood is going down. It was not that obvious that fatalities would go down. There's just, you know, maybe you have a car crash and you, you know, you hit the post or whatever, and maybe you're killing yourself. But um, so uh, that was not clear from a theoretical point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we, there are also other studies that have been done in Europe and other parts of the U.S. that find that fatalities might have go down. It depends on the situation when you look at it. But I'd say that one thing that I didn't mention that is very important is we're not looking at the effect of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the effect of the lockdowns. Right. So a lot of the studies or blogs that are going to just, you know, show you the raw data, they're looking really at this year in comparison to last year. So they're capturing the effect of the pandemic, they're capturing the effect of a lot of policies. Whereas here we're really trying to pin down what's the effect of lockdowns. And we think it's important because I guess the way I saw this is this is part of a broader research agenda that just tries to understand what are the consequences, what are the pros and cons or benefits of lockdowns. So air pollution and collision for me was, was something very interesting to document, but I think it's also very important to say, look, I mean, yes, when you implement a lockdown, you're going to have a decrease in employment, but there are other benefits. Yes, we might save lives, there might be less COVID cases, but there are also many other benefits of having a lockdown and many mm -hmm. other costs too, sure. uh, which we can talk about later on. But uh, that, that was really the idea of documenting the effect of lockdown and not specifically the effect of the, the pandemic. Thanks. That's, yeah, that's a really helpful piece of context and a perfect lead in actually to the next question. So, um, you know, economists are very good at quantifying things that can seem difficult to quantify, I think. And one of the things is, as you noted, um, you know, a reduction in collisions and a reduction in fatalities is a benefit. And, and my understanding is that you and your colleagues actually work to quantify that benefit. So can you tell us a little bit more about that quantification work that you did and kind of what you found? Yeah, um, so we, we really started looking at data for March, April, early May uh, for this exercise. And then we can talk later on about whether these effects persisted. But uh, what we find is if you look at the number of days of lockdowns in the U.S. and you prorate this to the number of people living in these areas um, and you take these data that we have and the estimates that we have for these five states and you try to generalize this to the entire uh, U.S. for all these states and counties that had lockdowns. Basically, you're trying to say, like, if we take these estimates, what happens at the national level? Mm -hmm. We were talking about 35,000 less car crashes, hmm. uh, which is a lot. I mean, That's we're talking 
every year we're talking about millions of uh, car crashes. So if these effects would persist for an entire year, a decrease of 50% is a lot of car crashes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also decrease in fatalities. Um, so, you know, uh, what we find is the number of fatalities going down by a lot, but at the national level, uh, the, so, you know, maybe I misspoke. So what I meant is 35,000 in terms of casualties, but in terms of collisions, just pure collisions, we're talking about hundreds of thousands. We're talking about something like 300,000 collision. So it's a lot. And now the question is, how much money is this? When there's a car crash, if you talk to insurers, I mean, they can give you an estimate of, you know, on average fixing the cars, uh, the claim is going to be something like $5,000, maybe on average per car crash. Well, 300,000 times $5,000 is a lot, but that's obviously very incomplete. There are many other costs. There are costs related to lawyers' fees, and then there's congestion. There's a traffic jam. Everybody arrives, you know, gets late to work, and then there's, you know, the doctor, the firefighters. There, there's so much going on. So some estimates are saying that, you know, maybe a car crash is $10,000. Maybe it's $15,000. So what we're trying to do is to take our estimates, make it, you know, to bring them up to uh, what's going on at the national level. And when you do this, you find that we're talking about billions of dollars as of early May. Um, it can be something up to, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I remember estimates were something like uh, for car crashes from seven to 20, $25 billion, depending on which range you use, whether you use this 5,000 that I mentioned, or you use this bound, which is 15,000, including everything. So we're talking about a lot of money, a lot of billions of dollars uh, as of early May, 2020. And then you can do a similar exercise with air pollution. Now, the problem with air pollution, it's very hard to put a number. I mean, how much are you willing to pay for clean air? So we have some studies that have been, you know, documenting maybe if we look at how much people are willing to pay in terms of, um, you know, looking at infant mortality or looking at many different things. And there's a cost when a baby dies, maybe because of pollution, and maybe we can try to figure out, you know, how much it's worth. There are many other ways to try to get this, but it's very noisy and it's really hard. You know, there's no agreement on how much less pollution is worth. But anyway, we use these bounds and we get something like maybe it's 350 million. Maybe we're talking about $7 billion as of early May. So now we're piling up the billions. It's a lot of money. And I have this other study where we document what's the effect on the unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the number of jobs that are lost because of the lockdowns, there are a lot of assumptions there. But you see in the US that the unemployment rate went up by about eight percentage points mm -hmm. from January to say April, May. So it moved from four to something like 12. It's probably more than that. There's some measurement there. But what we find is if a county or state, if a state implements a lockdown, there's an additional four percentage points in job loss. Hmm. So unemployment goes up. Mm -hmm. And then if you calculate how much these people are actually making in a given year, number of weeks that they were under the lockdown, number of people, we're talking about, you know, something like um, 25 billion, maybe more. So that's about the cost of, you know, the air pollution plus the car collisions. Now, obviously, there are many other economic costs. There's, you know, unemployment insurance. These people are not paying taxes. Maybe it's underestimated. But the idea was just to put this into perspective, just to get an idea of, you know, we're not talking about peanuts here. All these car crashes are actually having a large effect. We're saving a lot of money. And there are also other benefits in terms of 
you know, remote work that we can talk about later. But that was the idea, just looking at estimates of how much does a car crash cost on average? It's a lot of money, and this should be part of the conversation. I know it sounds weird to say, like, you know, we're saving lives with COVID and there's less cases, but yeah, what about car collision? It's actually a lot of money. So this should be part of a broader, you know, discussion on what are the costs and benefits of lockdowns. And there's a lot. It's very complicated. It is. And I, I, that's something that we've struggled with throughout the series is that we don't ever want to talk about these issues as if, oh, there's a silver lining to the pandemic. Well, the pandemic has been, you know, really challenging and terrible across most dimensions. But, but as you point out, you know, economists job in a certain sense is in fact to look at the full suite of costs and benefits and understand those things. And so um, it has been very illuminating, I guess I'd say, to hear from folks um, about those costs and benefits along a number of dimensions. So obviously this is a very important one. Um, so I wanted to ask how unique is this to the U.S.? You're not even based in the U.S., so thank you for looking at U.S. data. But, um, you know, how unique is this? How do your findings compare with uh, potentially other parts of the world where maybe they're not as car dependent as we are in the U.S.? Or, or you know, are there comparisons that you can offer? Yeah, so we looked at air pollution in uh, Europe and something like six or seven countries in Europe, and the effects are larger. So there's a larger decrease uh, in air pollution in France. Um, in Spain, we look at Italy, the UK. So on average for these European countries, you find larger effects in terms of decrease in air pollution than in the US. Um, I think, you know, many of these countries, the US is huge, it's like Canada, it's a huge country. Most mm -hmm. of it is rural. Uh, so if the decrease is coming from, you know, remote work, people stay at home. Also, obviously the economy, um, losing jobs, that sort of things. And then, you know, agriculture, mining and all these industries shutting down you would think that the effects could be somewhat similar across countries. So, but we, we do find very large effects also for Europe. It's been documented also in China and many other locations. So lockdowns are actually having large effects on pollution. In terms of car crashes, you find very large effects on decrease in terms of car crashes, collisions in many European countries. Now there are even studies showing um, other effects in South America, um, but the data I've looked at is mostly Europe and you see very large uh, decrease. So basically, you know, right now in OECD countries, a weekday is like uh, the weekend. Um, so usually there's less people on the road during weekend. Now it feels like we're always Saturday. Um, so you do find very large reduction elsewhere. Uh, these results are, I mean, the magnitude is different, but uh, the idea that, you know, pollution is going down, air pollution is going down, car crashes are decreasing. This is clearly happening elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I know that I, you actually started doing this research. You were pretty quick out of the gate in terms of uh, wanting to look at these issues. And of course, time has marched on and now lockdown levels are changing in lots of parts of the world. Um, what can you tell us about, you know, evidence that these trends are continuing? Have we rebounded to pre-lockdown levels either in the U.S. or in other places? Um, yeah, are we back to normal in terms of this unfortunate statistic? In the U.S., uh, in places where they reopen the economy, absolutely. You're, you're back to pre-pandemic level. I mean, more or less, maybe there's an effect that's going to be persistent depending on whether people are going to keep working from home and that sort of thing. But just in terms of magnitude, we're, we're definitely not seeing still a decrease in 50% in collision. Clearly not. Um, for states where there were more cases and that they didn't reopen as fast, you still see a decrease in collision. So it's basically just depending on the number of people who are going out. Um, so what's going to be interesting going forward, and unfortunately we don't know yet, but 
if you will allow me to speak late a bit, I think what we're going to see in the future is there might be a bit of a decrease in terms of air pollution and in terms of uh, car collision, simply because a lot of people are going to be working from home and a lot of people are not going to get their job back. Mm. There will be long-term effects, persistent effects. The question is the magnitude. We really have no idea. Is it going to be a depression that's going to last for years? Uh, depends how many other waves we're going to get of this. So northeast of the U.S. and Canada, right now things are a bit more relaxed, but you know there might be another wave in September. So if you look at the IMF, at OECD, they keep revising down their prediction for growth. So now it's minus 7% this year. It used to be minus 2%. Um, so I think people are getting more and more pessimistic, uh, which means that there will be more lockdown, which means that there will be less car crashes, there will be less pollution in the short run. But what's interesting is, is this going to stick around? And I think it's really dependent on whether remote work is going to become something we're going to get used to or not, and whether companies will want that. I think a lot of workers are enjoying this a lot. A lot of workers don't like it a lot. <laughs> Um, but companies certainly are seeing decreased costs um, and, you know, they don't want to get issues related to having cases in their own company. Um, so some companies definitely like what they're seeing right now. Others really want to reopen as fast as possible because they need clients. So it really depends on the exposure to other coworkers, to clients. It's really sector specific. Mm -hmm. But for some sectors of the economy, we might see that people are going to work from home not necessarily permanently, but for, you know, maybe months or years to come. So there might be an effect that persists. Yeah. Oh, boy. So many unknowns. Um, yes. I, I, I want to pivot quickly to another uh, cost associated with transport sort of during normal times. And that's commuting, which takes a toll on workers, you know, even in absence of crashes, certainly commuting alone, I think has been shown to have some, some significant and real costs, um, whether in terms of dollars spent or impacts on mental health. And so I'm wondering if we could talk about that for just a second, and yeah. sort of what we know about the magnitude of those costs, sort of in normal times. Mm -hmm. And then are there researchers looking at those reductions, reductions in commuting more generally, how that may have had costs and benefits? or at least for those who are fortunate enough to be able to work from home? Yeah. So if you look at 2019 data in the U.S., mostly census data and other surveys, we find that um, the costs, the monetary cost of commuting in the U.S. for people who are working is between $2,000 and $5,000. Um, so some states it's really cheap because they have public transportation, D.C., for instance, um, but it takes way more time in DC because public transportation. So usually you see this negative correlation between these two things, but it varies a lot in the US, but it's between two and 5,000. So let's take, you know, the middle, it's $3,500 for Americans working um, and, you know, commuting. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. So people are saving on this, saving a lot. And, you know, you had this podcast on electricity consumption and people are going to see bills going up. That is true. You're spending more time at home, but you're also saving money because, you know, you don't pay for parking. You don't pay for your bus ticket. You don't pay for your know, bus pass. You don't pay for gas, for fixing your car, car insurance. So a lot of car insurance companies realize that there's less car crashes. So, you know, at one point you have to give back some money. Um, so there was huge difference. There was huge differences across uh, insurance companies. Some of them just give you, you know, here's $50 we're good. Others was, you know, let's decrease your premium by 20% or 25%. So huge differences. 
Um, and this is important. This is a lot of money that people are saving. Obviously, it's people who have a job that are saving this money. People who are unemployed, yes, they don't commute, but they also saw a reduction in income. So you're going to see increase in inequalities. Um, but this is a monetary cost. Then you mention other things that are very important. There could be costs, other costs of remote work. So a lot of people have been documenting or trying to argue anecdotal evidence that there could be an increase in things like domestic violence because people working from home, women are more isolated. So in Canada, I've looked at a survey um, where we have question about domestic violence, family stress, and you know whether the, the respondent, the woman, uh, was working at home or not. And we didn't really see a connection there, hmm. um, a status quo relationship. We did see uh, evidence that uh, women who are at home because of the lockdowns reported an increase in... Um, family stress and increase mm. in the likelihood of domestic violence. So the lockdown seems to have an effect on this, but not necessarily because of remote work. But remote work can also have, you know, an effect on many different things. Um, so, you know, if you're not commuting, commuting is very painful. Um, you know, you listen to the radio or whatever, but working from home is also very painful uh, for a lot of people. So if you look at mental health data, you see that it's mostly women who are struggling a lot with uh, the lockdowns, mental health uh, levels are going down overall, but especially for women, especially for young people. So, you know, there are costs and benefits of staying at home working in comparison to commuting. Some people like commuting, some don't, I don't. Uh, <laughs> but it's really a question of preferences. And now people cannot really choose. Right. So you Good do point. have preferences, but now you're stuck. Right. And if things change and are permanent, well, you didn't buy the house that you were supposed to. You wanted to be much farther away from the city center, but hey, too late. You thought you had to commute. You wanted to be closer. So that sort of thing is going to take a lot of time to, you know, for the market to clear or, you know, mm -hmm. it's going to mm -hmm. take a lot of time for these preferences to be, uh, well, you know, to be satisfied in a sense. Right, um, right. And we have no idea whether there's going to be persistent effects. So there's a lot of things that are happening, uh, a lot of different costs related to mental health, related to your life your lifestyle change and you didn't choose that it just happened it sure did yeah for that resorting to occur I, I agree with you i think it's going to take a while to really understand um the impacts of all of these different choices that we have so um okay one more question for you uh about transportation um and it's about public transportation and mode choice so yeah i the pandemic has had huge consequences for ridership on public transportation certainly here in the u.s and here at least there's some concern that the pandemic may actually push public transportation uh into what i've i've seen referred to as a death spiral where reduced ridership and reduced revenue leads to a reduction in services and therefore longer wait times, which can lead to even lower ridership. So, um, so I wanted to ask you about that, if you know of research about kind of long-term impacts on public transportation, but then also, you know, in, in continuing our conversation about costs and benefits, have any mode choices actually benefited during the pandemic? Well, walking, bicycles have <laughs> certainly benefited from this. I mean, some cities are completely reshaping their, you know, downtown. Mm -hmm. And they're making, I, I don't know if it's going to be persistent or not, but uh, it's, it's much easier to walk now. Uh, in terms of like, think about like Uber, Lyft, I mean, food delivery, sure, but the rest are suffering. Taxis mm -hmm. are suffering a lot. Um, and then, you know, you, you talk about the other modes of transportation. Car sales, new car sales are down a lot. And when there's a recession, they're down. This is something that we know. And it's going to take a lot of time before the rebound. Used cars usually go down, but buy much less and rebound much faster. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to see and what we see in the data is people are buying used cars. 
um, instead of new cars. So some people, you know, dealerships might suffer differently whether to sell new cars or not. Um, in terms of public transportation, I, you know, we're back to this conversation, long-term effects of remote work. I think so. I mean, to some extent, I think if, to me, one thing that really bugs me is when people talk about, oh, some jobs can be done from home, some cannot. And I think that's not really what you should be thinking of. Some jobs can be done at work 60% of the time and 40% of the time is at home. I mean, it's rare that you have jobs that 100% is at home, zero is at work or the other around. So I think a lot of jobs we're going to get used to. Maybe we go at work two days a week. Maybe we go at work three days a week or just the morning, not the afternoon. Um, if that's the case, then public transportation is in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think about public transportation, I like to think about it in two different ways. There's the intensive margin and the extensive. Extensive is you just go or you'd never use it. So you use the public transportation or you never. And intensive is number of times that you use it, let's say in a week. Um, there's a lot of surveys now in the US, Canada, Europe that shows that ask people, are you going to ever use again public transportation? It's a bus. 99% of people say yes. Uh, so I don't think people will stop using bus forever, but a lot of people are saying, I'm not using it now until we have a vaccine, or I'm not using it now until we have face masks. So 50% of people like recent survey in Toronto said there needs to be face mask, otherwise I'm not going. And 25% were saying, we need vaccine. Now I'm not using it. So in terms of extensive margin in mm-hmm. the short run, we're going to see an effect in the long run, not really intensive margin. Oh, that's a problem. A lot of people are going to not want to use it five days a week, especially if you work from home a couple of days a week. So that's where you're going to see a decrease in revenues. And I think it's going to be the same for traveling, you know, using a airplane. They're starting to cut routes that are less popular. Buses are going to the same. You know, this bus route line is just going, ah, you know, it's not that popular. We're losing money anyway. They're going to start cutting those. So more remote areas might lose a lot in terms of public transportation but public transportation is not going to disappear. But in terms of long-term effect, the way I think about it is really intensive margin. That's the key. You need to make people go back to use those as much as possible. But obviously you also want to decrease number of cases. And some people are scared that when you go to the Metro bus, you're going to get sick and you're going to get COVID. Although the evidence is eh, not super convincing, hmm. um, but people are scared and you really need to make people more comfortable. And that's the only way to go in terms of people, you know, making people reuse public transportation, but there's something you don't control. Are people going to work from home or not? And to what extent? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be what's going to drive down profits of public transportation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me take my moderator's privilege to ask you one last question then. Um, before we wrap, two last questions actually, before we wrap up. But um, so you and your co- you and other colleagues at the University of Ottawa have in fact been looking at kind of the whole body of literature that's out there related to the economic impacts of, of the pandemic and or the lockdowns. Um, and that's a huge undertaking, but it's clear that you're, you know, trying to look across these costs and benefits pretty holistically. Can you just say anything quickly about kind of what you're hoping the impact of that broad literature review will be? I mean, you know, at the beginning, it started as a small project with graduate students just like, hey, keep me updated on new papers and just mm-hmm. give me summaries. It was huge. Within two weeks, we had hundreds of papers. I mean, there's been more than 1,000 papers written by economists on COVID, more than 1,000, easily more than 1,000. Um, so our goal was let's try to do literature review um, 
in which we are broad enough. We had to cherry pick some papers, not necessarily because those are the best papers, but just because there were too many. So, but the goal now, like, you know, we released this a couple of weeks ago. It's been downloaded thousands of times. And I think there was a need for this just because I think a lot of people are working on the same questions. There are also some database that just lists a number of papers and, you know, some papers are finished, others are not completed. Um, but you need to know where the literature is going. You need to know what people have done and you don't want people to work exactly on the same questions. So I've done that mistake of working exactly on the same data set, same research question as somebody else, mm-hmm. which is nice because then we compare the results and usually it was very similar. So I was mm-hmm. happy with the replication, but it would have been nice to know this in advantage just because I would have worked on something else or just maybe change the angle or looking at subgroups or something like this. So this really became the goal, just like, let's make this public and, you know, who knows who's going to read this? doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. You just get an idea of like, here's the literature. Here's what it looks like right now. It changed. It's been a few weeks. It's a moving target. Sure. So we keep updating it. It's a nightmare, but we do our <laughs> best. <laughs> um, but hopefully it's useful. I don't know. But the thing I learned is when you do a literature review, you get an idea of where the literature is going, which is kind of neat and interesting. So I sort of know in many different fields, what are people going to look at in six months mm-hmm. from now? So this gives me a bit of perspective. Uh, but then again, you know, I'm an economist, so I have no idea what's going to happen in two weeks from now. But uh, <laughs> maybe I know what's going to happen in six months from now. Yeah, well, we'll have to have you back on the podcast in six months <laughs> then to reflect on what you've learned in the in the interim. Um, Abel, this has been a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate you bringing this perspective on the transportation sector and a number of other issues uh, to the series. So thank you very much. Um, no, thanks to you. Yeah. And with that, I will close with our regular standard closing question, which we call top of the stack. I'm wondering what content you would recommend for our um, viewers and listeners uh, related to, well, anything you'd recommend really. It doesn't have to be specific to this topic, but something you'd want to share. Okay. So I had a baby a couple of months ago. I have no time to read nothing, but so my wife is Spanish. She's from Catalonia. And in Catalonia, once a year, they have the equivalent of Valentine, where the guy gives a flower, but the boy, the, the husband, the man receives a book. Mm, and my okay. wife bought me this a few years ago. It's called English Passengers. Okay. And it's one of my favorite book ever. So this is fiction. This is 19th century. It's about the reverend priest in the UK in London. And he thinks that the Garden of Eden is in Australia. So then he goes on a long journey. He's with a scientist. They don't like each other. And they go on the boat that is, you know, anyway, um, turns out that the boat is uh, from people who are smuggling alcohol. But anyway, it's a detail. Anyway, they don't, not, they don't like each other. And then it's a long journey going there. And when they get there, you know, spoiler alert, they don't find the Garden of Eden, but they find something much cooler. They find madness. And hmm. from that point on, the book is just amazing. It's a lot of fun. And you learn a lot about the history, slavery, tons of things about Tasmania, about Australia in general, the history, which I knew absolutely nothing about. It's a great book, great read. Has nothing to do with nothing except maybe transportation. They use a boat. Otherwise, <laughs> Maybe that form of transportation is going to see a renaissance during this period too. Who knows? I hope but... <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah, we'll start transatlantic boat passages again. Boy, exactly. I don't think so. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's a fascinating recommendation. I really appreciate it. So, um, well, Abel, I think we're going to wrap up and thank you again. It's been a pleasure and hopefully we can talk to you again on Resources Radio at some point in the future. For sure. Thanks. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye, everybody. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. 
If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.